0: How's it going, everybody? You're listening to The Raven's Grove. I'm your host, Dahi. And today, we're going to be once again taking the plunge into the world of facts with our long range fact Dump series. Now, before I go any further, this episode of The Raven's Grove features the following trigger warnings. Supernatural or slash horror mentions, crime mentions, tobacco mentions, cannabis and marijuana mentions, drug mentions, weapon mentions, murder mentions, mummification mentions, and medical practice mentions. So if any of those are in any way a trigger for you, please give this episode a miss. Sorry to get this part started, did you know that both dolphins and turtles get high? No, I'm not making this up. If you've seen the film Finding Nemo, you'll probably remember the sea turtles, they'll speak like stone surfers. Like, whoa, dude. That depiction is actually not that far removed from the truth. See, in the wild, sea turtles are known to eat jellyfish, Thing is, there's an active chemical in jellyfish tissue that acts as a psychoactive agent for turtles in a near identical manner as cannabis does for humans. And as for dolphins, they take it one step further. Dolphins have been known to deliberately antagonize pufferfish so that they inflate as a defense mechanism. Now, this may seem like dolphins being mean for no reason, which is a perfectly valid assumption, I might add. Seriously, dolphins are mean little buggers. I'll be doing another episode on that topic, so stay tuned. But marine biologists have worked out that when pufferfish inflate their bodies, it releases a specific chemical into the water around the bodies. Now, this chemical is designed to disorientate and deter predators, allowing the pufferfish to swim away. But it seems that dolphins can will actually cause deliberately cause pufferfish to inflate just so they can imbibe this chemical to get high. In fact, there's actually footage online of a pot of dolphins passing around a pufferfish around a circle like a bong. Again, I'm not making this up. Seriously, go look it up for yourselves. It is hilarious. All right, fact number two. Now, what do you think when I say these two names? Snoop Dogg and Martha Stewart. When I said Snoop's name, you probably thought weed, guns, gangster rap. When I said Martha Stewart, you probably thought cooking, homemaking, organizing, a comfortable life. But what many people may not know is that of the two of them, only one of them has actually done time in prison, and it's not for what you demeanly think. You see, Snoop, despite, despite being a literal legend in the rap genre, he's never been to prison. Don't get me wrong, he's been in trouble with the law uh, more than once for a variety of reasons, most notably when he was arrested for murder in 1993. Eh. See, in that instance, he was acquitted when it came to trial in '95 on the grounds that A... It was self-defense. B, the man that Snoop's bodyguard had shot was a member of the rival gang. C, the victim had been carrying a firearm and went to draw it, thus posing a very real threat. D, the victim's friend had returned to the crime scene tampered with the evidence behind the victim's gun. E, that Snoop wasn't actually the shooter. He was just driving the car. And F... The fact that the LAPD had done a truly appalling job of handling the crime scene with incompetence, having inadvertently destroyed the murder victim's clothing, bullets, and shelf casings from the scene. Apparently, when that last fact came out in the courtroom during the trial, it was catastrophic for the case against Snoop and his bodyguard. However, Martha Stewart was actually sent to federal prison for six months in 2004 for insider trading, conspiracy, and lying to federal investigators, and then had to serve another six months under house arrest and a further two years probation. Crazy how things work out, huh? Now on to fact number three. Now I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that most of you listening to this podcast will at least have heard of Ramesses II if you don't know outright who he is. For those of you who haven't heard of him, don't worry, I'm not judging. It's not exactly common knowledge if, you, if you're if you not an archaeologist. So here's the Dahi 25 words or less version. Born in circa 1303 BCE, Ramses II was one of the most powerful and most well-known Egyptian pharaohs of all time, ruling Egypt for nearly 67 years in the 19th dynasty of the New Kingdom before passing away in 1213 BCE, aged approximately 90, which in that time period is an in- incredible achievement. I'll be doing an episode on some of the greatest fairs of all time later in the year, so stay tuned. But if you want a you know, quick idea of just how egotistical this guy was, look up the Temple of Abu Simbel, spelled A-B-U space S-I-M-B-E-L, on Google Images, or look up the Battle of Kadesh, though that's a topic for another time. And the point is, well, you'll get the idea of just how Self a granddaughter in the sky was. The point is, Ramesses sti- was and still is one of the most important and well known pharaohs of ancient Egypt, and his mummy is currently on display in the Cairo Museum. However, back in 1975, Maurice Boucaille, a French doctor, ex- examined the mummy in the Cairo Museum and found that Ramesses' remains, try saying that five times real fast, was in a very bad state. The French president at the time actually succeeded in convincing the Egyptian authorities to send the mummy to France for treatment at the Louvre. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Louvre has got an absolutely incredible Egyptian artifacts collection, and that's a story for another time. But here's the funny part. In order to get Ramses to pass through customs without being held up, and they couldn't exactly ship him in freight, I mean, he's a mummy for Pete's sake, the Egyptian government issued him a passport. And where they would normally list someone's occupation, for Ramesses, it read king, and then brackets, deceased. When he arrived in Paris, he was given a military escort with full honours, as you would expect for any head of a state. And the good news is that the French archaeologists and conservationists dis- succeeded in restoring the da- mummy and halting the damage. And now, Ramesses is back in pride of place in Cairo Museum's mummy gallery. Fact number four. Now, if you're a long-time listener to this podcast, you'll know that I'm a fairly big geek. But what you may not know is that one of the worst superhero films of all time was directly responsible for the entirety of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. If you haven't seen The train wreck, there's a 2003 film, Daredevil. Please just count yourself lucky. It is easily one of the worst comic book movies I've ever seen, and that's comparing it to the Joel Schumacher Batman movies, Superman Returns, and X-Men 3 The Last Stand. And those are some astonishingly bad films. However, the geek world owes the garbage fire of Daredevil a huge debt because it directly caused Jon Favreau to create the first Iron Man movie and thus the MCU as we know it. You see, Favreau was the director of Daredevil and he was apparently really annoyed at the constant interference of the studio executives and he just really wanted to make a superhero film his way. This directly led to him gaining the job as director of Iron Man in 2006. When Iron Man came out in 2008, it quickly became one of the most popular superhero movies of all time, and now the MCU is an unstoppable behemoth of geek culture, with 27 films and 18 TV shows released so far as of March 2022, and with plenty more on the way. Fact number five is also about Marvel movies, but it's not what you'd think. Rather, this is a story and one of the biggest missed opportunities in modern popular culture. You see, in the 1990s, Marvel was a struggling comic book company. The only comic book movies that had been done anywhere near decently had been the Michael Keaton Batman movies, and they were so far away from the source material there as to be their own franchise. The point is, Marvel was on the verge of bankruptcy, and so they offered Sony Films the rights to every single Marvel character, not once, but twice. Once in 1996, and again in 1998. Both times, the deal fell through. And it's because the first time, it's because Sony only wore Spider-Man as a character. The second time, it was a laughably low sum of $25 million for all Marvel characters and IPs. See, they thought that Spider-Man was the only character worth developing into a movie, and they couldn't really give a fig about the other IPs, and Marvel really didn't agree with that. They wanted all the characters to get a chance at the spotlight equally. Ultimately, the deal didn't go through, and Marvel sold off some of their IPs to other companies. 20th Century Fox got the X-Men and the Fantastic Four, Marvel got, uh, sorry, Sony got Spider-Man, Daredevil, and Elektra, and Disney bought out the rest, which at the time were considered B-list characters like the Avengers. I know, it's hard to believe that the Avengers were considered B-list, but that's the way it was, and they formed Marvel Studios. Now, I'll admit, I grew up with Tobey Maguire's version of Spider-Man, and I still remember seeing it at the cinemas in 2002, is some of my favourite films are the true first movies in the Tobey Maguire, Sam Raimi, Spider-Man trilogy. To this day, they are some of my favourite films. But fast forward 10 to 15 years, Iron Man's come out, and the MCU is really kicking off. Suddenly, everyone's clamouring over Disney's versions of these characters, and well... With the sheer amount of legal issues over the characters of Quicksilver and Spider-Man appearing in the MCU in the past 10 years, well, you can bet you anything you like that Sony are kicking themselves for passing up on the entire Marvel IP rights. Fact number six deals with one of the most famous types of monsters in modern fiction, vampires. Now, while the depictions of the vampire in modern media have a lot to answer for, yes, I'm talking about you, Twilight, One of the most common beliefs about traditional vampires is that they can't be seen in photographs or on camera, and they don't have a reflection. Now, to understand why this is, here's a crash course in revolutionary era and Victorian era technology. At the time, mirrors were comprised of a large, highly polished piece of silver with glass placed in front of it. Now, as for the cameras in the film... Up until the age of the digital camera, traditional film stock was developed using a using a process that involved the chemical silver nitrate. Now, in nearly all modern in nearly all vampire lore, that not actually in any way serious about it. Again, looking at you here twilight, silver is either outright lethal or at the very least is very very bad or poisonous to vampires. This means that vampires would not cast a reflection on a mirror made with silver, nor would their image be caught on the cameras of the time. However, nearly all mirrors these days aren't made with silver, and they're, but they are made with stainless steel, and photos taken on digital cameras no longer need developing in silver nitrate emulsion. Therefore, a modern vampire story would be able to have the vampires see the reflection and have their photo taken. Finally, fact number seven concerns the inspiration for one of the most popular characters in the Harry Potter franchise. According to the story, back in the late 80s or early 90s, J.K. Rowling was in a pub in Devon. Now, for those of you who don't know where Devon is, if you look at a map on the UK, it's down in the bottom left-hand corner. It's in the West Country. And they have got a, for one of a time, a very distinct accent. I'll be doing an impression of it later on this fact, so don't worry. So she's in a pub in Devon. When in walked a bunch of bikers, now these were your standard bikers, long beards, wild hair, tattoos, the kind you really don't want to mess with. But apparently there was one among them who took that to their next level and he was huge, much bigger than the others. According to the story, he sat down at the table next to Rowling and as you'd expect, Rowling was very in- in nervous by this. But then, this incredibly intimidating giant of a man starts up a conversation with her in a very West Country accent about how he's worried those petunias and pansies weren't doing too well. Apparently, they had a very nice conversation about gardening, and she left in a really good mood, and that biker became the inspiration for the character of Rubius Hagrid in the Harry Potter universe. And speaking as a Harry Potter fan, Hagrid's one of my favorite characters, so I really appreciate that one. Anyway, that's all for today, folks. Thanks for listening to The Raven's Grove. I've been Dahi, you've been awesome, and I'll talk to you in the next episode. See ya.